and good morning. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I see a lot of families that I know from Berean Academy, and I've also met a few people today that are old acquaintances, including one family that remembers me when my parents were with New Tribes Mission many, many years ago in missionary training, and I was six or seven, eight years old. I don't remember them, but they remembered me, so that's exciting. Uh, I also need to just get this out right away. Uh, if you're hoping that you have a, a guest speaker today and that means you're going to get to leave early, that's not going to happen. Pastor Matt, in talking with me, I said, well, how long should I plan for? And he said 40 to 50 minutes. And then he said, anything less than 40 and they'll riot. And I don't want to be the first uh, guest speaker in Dune Bible history to cause a riot. So I've got about two hours of material here. And uh, I'll try to shut that down a little early once I get around an hour or so. So anyway, wanted to mention that. And then I appreciate the introduction from Bruce. That was what was fantastic. He mentioned those degrees. And, and the one thing that he doesn't know, and, and probably many of you don't know, is it took me seven years to earn that first bachelor's degree. Uh, I really didn't know what I was going to be doing with my life. I wasn't really sure of my calling. And so I started out actually as an ag major. And my first degree was from Butler County Community College in agriculture. And I was on the livestock judging team there. And then the Lord took me from there to New Tribes Bible Institute in Waukesha, Wisconsin, where I met my wife. And then we came back to Kansas and I finished my teaching degree. And uh, consider a real uh, privilege to be here with you this morning. God has not called me to be a pastor, but I do think that the Lord uh, has shown me some things in my study of Peter in the last few months. And I I'm eager to share some of those things with you this morning as well. As I said, we're going to take a brief survey of the life of Peter, and Bruce mentioned the, the main passage. Uh, Pastor Matt uh, pinned me down on a text, and the reality is we're going to be looking at a lot of verses this morning, and it may feel a little bit like a sword drill. We will eventually get to Acts chapter uh, 4, um, but it's going to take a little while, and I'm going to be reading primarily out of the New King James Version, so if you're wondering what translation I'm using, that's it. Uh, I find that Peter is popular with many people because the scriptures paint such a vivid picture of a man with whom I can easily relate, and I think many people can easily relate. At times, he was impulsive in his speech and his actions. His judgment was often misguided. He had zeal without knowledge at times. And he failed often, and yet the Lord used him. We see in Simon Peter a man whose life was transformed by Jesus, his word, and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And this is significant because God, his word, and the Holy Spirit continue to transform lives today. In fact, that is why I'm such a strong supporter of Christian education. That's going to be the last thing I'll say about it. I have seen its power to transform many, many lives transformed my own life as well. And it's the power of God's word that accomplishes that in so many cases. So as a central theme for today's message, we will be looking at the transformation that occurred in Peter, uh, a before and after picture, if you will. And we're going to start by, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to John chapter 1, verse 40. We see with Simon Peter, what I would say is a, an original, an initial introduction, followed by a first call, and then a more permanent call. We're going to briefly look at those. So John chapter 1, verse 40 to 42. The context here, John the Baptist has said something to the effect that there's the Lamb of God, or, uh, 
and several of John's disciples hearing that uh, follow him, and they make an introduction that begins in verse 40, John chapter 1, verse 40. One of the two heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, or the anointed one. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. Now Cephas is Aramaic for a stone or a rock, and Peter is the Greek translation of Cephas, and that's what we see in our Bibles. In the Gospels and in the book of Acts, Peter is normally called by that name, Peter. Though John often calls him Simon Peter throughout the book of the Gospel of John, possibly because of the intimacy that existed between John and Peter. They were old fishing buddies. Interestingly, as recorded in the Gospels, when Jesus actually uses direct address to, to talk to Peter, he also normally calls him by his given name, Simon. I think that's interesting, and it may speak to the intimacy that existed between Jesus Christ and the disciple Simon. Now, next we're going to look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, and I would call this the first calling, if you will, of Matthew. The introduction has been made, but then in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18, Matthew 4, 18, we read, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. I want you to just note a little detail there. It says they left their nets. That may be significant. Now, after this passage in Matthew and this initial calling, we have the Sermon of the Mount that, that follows in Matthew 5 through 7. And then in Matthew chapter 8, we have the story of Peter uh, going home. Jesus follows Peter into his home. And Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law. And we learn a couple things from that just very quickly. First of all, Peter had a home. He was a homeowner like many of you. Scripture doesn't say what his HOA fees were like, uh, what his property taxes were, anything like that. But he owned a home. And we also learn from that passage that he was a married man. Again, Scriptures don't tell us whether he had children, but he was a married man, had a home, and in some respects was like us. After that we see what I would call Peter's second and more permanent calling. And if you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5 and verse 4, we see this second and, and as I said, more permanent call of Peter. Luke chapter 5, verse 4 through 11. So it was, as the multitude... Well, I'm going to go and start in verse 1. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Genesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Now the two boats and the fishermen, that's James and John, Peter and Andrew. And notice they've been washing their nets. They had, we find out later, had fished all night and without success, and now we're cleaning things up. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitude from the boat. And when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. 
And Simon, but Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Now, Simon is the professional fisherman here. Uh, I don't go into the kitchen very often at my home and offer cooking advice to my wife. It's not welcome. She's the one who is skilled in cooking. I'm not. I can do fried potatoes and spam. I picked that skill up uh, when I was single. But beyond that, I don't do any cooking and I don't offer any advice in my kitchen. Many of you are farmers. You wouldn't want me, despite my ag degree, to show up and tell you how you ought to run things on your farm or what you should do. And yet we have here Jesus telling Peter, go ahead and cast your net out again. And remember, Peter's just spent all of his time while Jesus is preaching, cleaning his nets. If he casts his nets again, does that mean he's going to have to go back and, and clean those nets again? And you kind of sense a little of that when Peter says, hey, I, we've, we've toiled all night. We've caught nothing. And then Peter goes on to say, nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. Now, this is a, a miracle of supernatural proportions. Peter is a, a, a professional fisherman. He knows what a normal catch of fish looks like. And this is so exceeds anything within his experience that we see his response in verse 8. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And this is a, a common response we see in Scripture when people come face to face with the Lord and with his holiness. They recognize the inadequacy of themselves and their own sinfulness. We see that Peter before this had recognized that Jesus Christ might be the Messiah, but now he's beginning to get an inkling that Jesus is more than that. And so recognizing his own sinfulness, he falls down and says, depart from me. It says in verse 9, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. But do you notice what Jesus then goes on to do in verse 10? Jesus says to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch fish. You, you will catch men. Uh, so when they had brought their boats to land, and I think this is significant as well, and I, and I want to compare this with the verse of Matthew chapter 4. It says they forsook all and followed him. In Matthew chapter 4, it says they left their nets. They left their nets and followed him. But here in in this more permanent calling, they forsook all, absolutely everything, and they followed him from that point forward. And we don't see Peter returning to his fishing nets or his boats until after the resurrection of Jesus as a result of this. In Matthew chapter 9, 23 through 26, and I won't go there, but that's the story of where Jesus raised the synagogue ruler's daughter from the dead. We learn from the book of Luke that the girl was about 12 years old. It's interesting that only Peter, James, and John were permitted to go into the room with Jesus and witness this resurrection or this raising of this uh, little girl from the dead. And then we uh, are follow that with another miracle, one that all Christians, I think, are familiar with. Matthew chapter 14, if you want to turn there, Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 to 33. And this is the story of Jesus walking on water. Now, Prior to Jesus crossing uh, the Sea of Galilee and walking on water, he had just fed the 5,000. And after feeding the 5,000, it starts in verse 
chapter 14, verse 22. It says, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. Now, did you catch that? Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And then skipping to verse 24. But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, I want to share something that was mentioned in a devotional uh, at Brain Academy. One of the, the teachers there mentioned this in our, in our staff devotions in the morning, and I appreciate it, and I wanted to share it with you today. When Jesus made his disciples get in the boat and go on the Sea of Galilee, did he know that there was going to be a storm, tumultuous waves and a, and a boisterous wind and so on? Absolutely. It, it didn't take Jesus by surprise that this was going to happen. It, he knew it was going to happen, and he made his disciples go out in the boat, out onto the sea, because there was something that he wanted to teach the disciples, something that they couldn't learn if they crossed the sea on calm on a calm day. This was something that God, Jesus Christ, wanted them to learn, and he wanted them to learn it in the middle of this, this storm and so on. And so, as is often the case in our own lives, we can encounter difficult times, trials, difficult situations. And just because we're in the middle of a difficult situation or difficult trial, God is still at work. In fact, God may have us in that particular situation because there's something that he wants to do in our lives. And so I really appreciated that and, and wanted to share that this morning. I can't remember who shared it. I'll give them credit if I did. But Jesus then goes out to his disciples. We read in verse 25, Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. Now their reaction, is, I suppose, makes sense. Up to this point in human history, had anyone ever walked on water? So they are in a boat, and they see this figure coming across the water. And their reaction seems to be uh, in keeping with the situation. They cry out. And then Jesus responds in verse 27. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. I like the way that sounds. Be of good cheer. It is I. I don't know. It sounds Shakespearean. The English teacher in me likes that. Um, I could go on saying that over and over. But he says, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And then at this point, Peter asks what I would say is a very makes an illogical request. Peter says in verse 28, Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, the reason I say it's illogical, what if this was a sneaky ghost on the water? What if this was a lying, deceitful ghost? I mean, if it was a sneaky, lying, deceitful ghost, the ghost could have said to Peter, yes come. And Peter could have got out of the boat and promptly drowned, right? So in that sense, I, I think Peter, I wouldn't have asked that question. Uh, it could have been a ghost or a sneaky ghost. It could have been Jesus. He really had no way of knowing just because the, the, the person says, come. But that aside, Peter shows amazing faith, doesn't he, at this point? Because we see that when Jesus says, come, what does Peter do? It says, Peter came down out of the boat, and he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now, Peter's often criticized, and he's remembered for what happens next, right? He's remembered for the fact that as he's crossing to Jesus, he's going uh, to sink in the water. He's going to lose his focus on Christ. 
and he's going to be rebuked by Christ. He's going to say, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? But I think it's significant that he even got out of the boat. Because where were the other disciples? They're still all in the boat. None of them got out of the boat. But Jesus gets out of the boat. Uh, not Jesus. Peter gets out of the boat, and he walks towards Jesus on the water. Now, what happens next is what happens to us often in life, isn't it? When Peter had come out of the boat, and he walked on the water to go to Jesus, it says, but when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. First, isn't that often what happens to us in life? We go, we're going along in life just beautifully, and then we're faced with a trial, some situation. Maybe it's a, a conflict of some kind, or a, a situation at work, or a health situation, or a, or a loss of some kind. And our initial reaction is a biblical one. It's a godly one. Our focus is on Christ. We're handling it well. Uh, we're, we're not allowing fear to take control if it's one of those kinds of situations. And then what begins to happen in many cases? We begin to look at the situation. We allow our eyes to lose their focus on Jesus Christ. And we begin looking at the things that are going on around us. And then we begin to fear. And we begin to doubt. And we begin to manipulate. Or we begin to do different things to try to address the situation that we're in. We're really no different from Peter in that sense. Peter took his eyes off Christ and he begins to sink. But he does the one thing that he should have done. What does he do? He calls out to Christ. And even though at times we make bad choices and we may find ourselves in difficult situations and, and the Lord's in the middle of that and He and if we keep our eyes on him we'll be just fine but we, we lose focus and we begin to, to look at our challenging situation the same way that Peter did. If we will call out to Christ, he will save us. In fact, you see what happens next in verse 31 how quickly does jesus respond i don't know what your translation says mine in verse 31 says and immediately jesus stretched out his hand isn't that nice jesus didn't say leave him there to flounder in the water for a while peter i got to punish you because you took your eyes off me and i'm going to make you flounder for a while he didn't do that he immediately reached out stretched out his hand and caught him and then he said to him, he still rebukes him, Oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? Remember, Peter has witnessed the feeding of 5,000. He has witnessed uh, a number of other miracles, the, the raising of the little girl from the dead. He's seen all of these things, and yet in this situation, he lose sight of the Lord, and he doubts. And so he's rebuked for that, but the Lord saves him. And then it says in verse 32, When they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Now I can picture... Peter and Jesus walking. Do you think Peter let go of Jesus' hand the whole way back to the boat? I bet he was clinging to him all the way back to the boat. He didn't want to repeat of that. But when they got in the boat, did you notice when the wind ceased? When did it cease? After they got back in the boat. Could Jesus at any time have made the storm stop? When Peter got out of the boat to walk towards him, could he have made it stop then? Absolutely. Could he have made it stop when Peter started to sink? He could have, but he didn't. It was only when he got back in the boat that he made that storm stop. And often the Lord, again, in his perfect timing, the storm stopped when he's ready. But the storms are in our life to try. God is using them to grow us in our Christian faith. He's using them to make us stronger believers. 
And what's the response of the disciples and Peter and the others when they get in the boat? What we see in verse 33, then those who were in the boat came and worshiped him saying, truly you are the son of God. That was the response of the disciples after this encounter on the sea. Well, turn just over a few pages to Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. In this particular passage, we're going to see Peter is the top student in the disciple class. Jesus is going to ask a question, and Peter is going to have the right answer. He's going to get a star next to his name. In verse 13 of chapter 16, it says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Again, it's in this passage we see Peter, who is the recorded spokesman of the disciples. And Jesus goes on to bless Peter because this revelation, because of this revelation, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, it came directly from the Father. And so he gets an A on his paper, uh, but the answer actually came through from the Lord. But then we're going to see just a few verses later, and I don't know if there was much of a time gap. I mean, the passages come one right after the other. There could have been a time gap between them, but we see in verse 21 that Peter's going to go from being at the top of the class to being rebuked by Jesus for giving the wrong answer in verse 23. In verse 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Now, in just a few verses before this, Peter has declared that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then we find after Jesus says, Here's what my path forward looks like. Peter feels that he has the freedom to rebuke Jesus on that eternal plan or that, uh, that plan that God had for him. In doing so, Peter had become a tool of Satan to try and thwart the crucifixion. And what is the Lord's response to him? The Lord says to him, turned to him and said, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. How often do you think we are a little bit like Peter? That our worldview and our perspective, that we do not have the things of God in mind when we give advice. When we are trying to be helpful to uh, someone in a marriage that's struggling, or, or people who are struggling with their children, or or we're trying to give advice to someone in the job or workplace or how to deal with a coworker, or even when it's our own kids and one of them comes home and says, I feel like the Lord's calling me to the mission field. And our response is what? Do we approach that situation? Is the advice we give, is it mindful of the things of God or do we have the things of man in mind when we give our advice? Uh, I've got a daughter who has said that she's thinking about missions, uh, married and in Wisconsin. And my first thought is, 
I won't see my grandchildren again. Now, I used to be overseas. It was easy when I was the one taking the kids overseas. I didn't think too much about my own uh, parents and my wife's parents and that the grandkids, their grandkids were overseas. But my first thought is, I won't see the grandkids. Will it be safe? Are those the things of men that I'm thinking about, or am I thinking about the things of God? Where does my mind naturally go? I have to confess that I watched a lot of John Wayne movies when I was a kid. John Wayne does not provide a great role model of how a Christian man should approach life, does he? And yet often, and I just as a confession, growing up and, and as a young man and so on, that my response to things and the way I approach life, often it was a secular humanist worldview that permeated the way that I thought. I didn't intentionally think that way. It's just the effect of living in a culture that constantly bombards us with a worldly way of thinking that is not biblical. And then our knee-jerk reaction in many situations is not to think of things the way God wants us to think of things, not immediately to apply biblical principles, but our first knee-jerk reaction is a secular one. And we give advice that sounds just like the advice the world would give. And our responses in situations will look just like the advice or the responses that we would expect from an unbeliever. Peter falls into that trap here, and his advice to Christ is the advice an unbeliever would have given to Christ because he was not mindful of the things of God. It's just a little warning there that we have to be thoughtful about our viewpoint as we go through life. And do we have those things of God in mind? Or are we allowing the things of the world to permeate our minds? Uh, Romans chapter 12 speaks to this, that we have to renew our minds continually because the world's always impacting us and uh, influencing us. Well, I'm going to skip over to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, not going to spend a lot of time there, but in Luke chapter 9, we read about the transfiguration. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 28. And I chose this one because I like it in several of the Gospels, but I like the account here the best. Luke chapter 9, verse 28. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened, as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Now, I love that statement, not knowing what he said. One translation puts it this way. Peter, not knowing what to say, said. I love that. Peter, not knowing what to say, said. How often do you live in that world? I'm trying to do better at this. When I don't know what to say, don't say anything, okay? Uh, in my office, I'll have folks come in, and, and we're working on something, and, and I need a, a document on my computer, and so I'll get on my computer, and I'm still trying to talk, but I'm trying to find a file. And I've learned over the years, I can't talk and find a file at the same time. And I've said more than once, I'm going to stop saying this, I can't talk and think at the same time. Now think about that. I can't talk and think at the same time. 
Uh, I know people, I think that that's actually true. You know, they, they go through life and they really can't talk and think what they're saying they probably shouldn't say. They're not thinking while they talk. And I think sometimes I'm guilty of that. And certainly Peter was guilty of that in this instant. His idea was based on zeal without knowledge. What was the mistake here? I, I suppose it's that he wanted to build a tabernacle for Moses, for Elijah, and for Jesus, and he was putting them all on the same level, if you will, not knowing what he said. And we read in verse 34 and 35 then, while he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. And when the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone, but they kept quiet and told no one. This whole situation, this experience on the Mount of Transfiguration made quite an impact on Peter. He actually writes about it decades later in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. He wrote, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. This experience was something that Peter looked back on and probably was a source of strength in the years that came, being witness to that transfiguration. Well, I'm going to keep moving along here. Time is quickly passing. John chapter 13, this is the situation in which Jesus washes the feet of the disciples, and he has a lesson that he's trying to teach them in John chapter 13, and he gets to Peter, and Peter questions Jesus. Lord, are you washing my feet? And then we read in the next verse, verse 7, that Jesus tells Peter, you do not understand now what I'm doing. Now, he's coming right out. Peter, you don't understand what's going on. Now, what should Peter have done at that point? Submitted. I don't, he's telling me I don't understand what's going on. I'm just going to submit. But that's not Peter. Instead, Peter, despite this warning or this uh, information from Jesus, Peter declares, you shall never wash my feet. Absolute statement. Not going to wash my feet. I don't care if I don't understand what's going on or not. I'm not going to let you do it. And Jesus responds in verse 8, If I do not wash you, you have no part of me. And then in typical Peter fashion, verse 9, he jumps from one extreme to the other. Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And then Christ responds, Peter, if you've been washed, you don't. I don't need to wash your whole body. But this is just so typical of Peter not knowing what's going on and making these bold statements and so on. Uh, and he would just have been better off just to listen and to submit to the Lord, but he doesn't do that. And then if we looked in Matthew chapter 26, you can say we're quickly moving towards the end of the Gospels. Matthew chapter 26, in verse 31 through 35, Peter boasts that he will never, never stumble. He'll never, never betray Christ. Matthew 26, starting verse 31. Then Jesus said to him, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. 
Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the other disciples. Luke chapter 22 adds another uh, glimpse of what happened here. Luke chapter 22, uh, starting verse 31, it says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith shall not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Christ prophesies in this passage that Peter will deny him three times before the next morning when the cock crows. And his events will bear out Peter, I think, meant what he said. I think in Peter's mind, he pictured himself fighting to the death to defend Christ. I think, in fact, I'm, I feel like Peter probably spent a little bit of time imagining himself in that. He had his sword, and he was practicing with it, and he was getting ready for this opportunity to die. And I think he fully intended to do that, but he was misguided. Peter fell into the trap of deciding in what way he would see that he would serve the Lord. And so just a few verses later in the Garden of Gethsemane, when the mob comes to arrest Jesus, and Judas has betrayed Jesus with a kiss, we read in verse 50, But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. And in verse 51, we read, And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus, we learn from Luke that that was, or rather we learn from the book of John that that was actually Peter, that Peter stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Do you think Peter was aiming for the ear? I don't think so. Uh, it tells you probably he was a fisherman and not a swordsman, and he wasn't very good at it. But in this point, at the point when they have come to arrest Jesus, Peter is planning to live up to his declaration. He was ready to take on the whole mob and fight to the death. Ready to do it. But the Lord completely disrupts his thinking. In verse 52, Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. See, Peter, I think, had envisioned himself fighting to the death to defend Christ. And when the Lord told him to put his sword away, completely disrupted Peter's thinking. And he, and he lost uh, complete control of what he thought was going to happen. And like the other disciples in verse 56, he fled. Now, what do we learn about Peter? He fled, but what happens in verse 58? We see that Peter is following at a distance. Where are the other disciples? They're nowhere to be seen except John. The other disciples are all gone. But Peter follows at a distance. And then we read in 69 through 75 that Peter denies Christ three times. It's recorded in all four Gospels, Peter's denial, which I think is, again, a record. This record points to the authenticity of Scripture. There's no whitewashed account to protect the image and reputation of Peter. His failure, like that of other Old Testament, New Testament saints, is recorded as it occurred for all to see and learn from. And the inclusion of these details, even the failure of one of the pillars of the early church, points to the Scripture's reliability. They include the, this failure, this enormous failure on Peter's part, because it happened. And so it had to be recorded. In Mark chapter 16, after the crucifixion, Jesus has been buried and he's been resurrected from the, from the grave. In Mark chapter 16, we're told that an angel told Mary Magdalene to go tell his disciples and Peter. And I think that's significant because we begin to see already the restoration of Peter. 
And in John chapter 20, verses 3 through 7, we see that Peter and John ran to the tomb. And that narrative in John chapter 3, John says that one disciple got there first. Is he bragging? I don't know. And then Peter arrives, and Peter, in his impulsive way, immediately goes into the tomb, and they see the evidence of the resurrection, verses 6 and 7. And then John enters, and Scripture says in verse 8 that John entered and believed. Scripture doesn't tell us if Peter believed at that point or not, but we see in John chapter 20 that Jesus appeared in the upper room to the disciples two different times and saw Peter in those two instances. And then in John chapter 21, we see that Peter decides, well, what does Peter do when he doesn't know what else to do? He goes fishing. And so in verse 3, we see Peter say, I'm going fishing. And the other disciples join him. And on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus appears on the shore. They don't recognize him. He calls to them. He tells them to lower their nets again. And a miracle takes place that reminds the disciples of a miracle that had occurred early in the ministry of Christ. They catch more fish than they can haul into their boats. And then what does Peter do? John says, I, it's Christ. And Peter, in his impulsive exuberance, he jumps in the water and he makes his way to Christ, leaves all the work for the other disciples. They have to pull all the fish in while he is in the water proceeding to Christ. And then Jesus begins to restore Peter. In that famous passage, uh, John chapter 21, three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me more than these? And three times Peter responds, you know that I love you. But Peter was grieved the third time when Jesus asked. He says, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus' response in these three, these three verses, 15, 16, and 17 of John chapter 21, is to restore Peter to the ministry. He says in verse 15, feed my lamb. Verse 16, tend my sheep. Verse 17, feed my sheep. Despite Peter's failure, Jesus has restored him and given him work to do with the Lord's flock. And then Jesus concludes there with a final commandment in verse 19, follow me. Now all of this is leading up then to a new Peter. We see in Acts chapter 2, and just verse 14, and I'm running out of time, so I'll read this quickly. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. The disciples are in Jerusalem. Pentecost takes place. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 14, it says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and heed my words. Peter takes the initiative in preaching that day. as was already mentioned. They've all, all been filled with the Holy Spirit. And Pete, Peter preaches a sermon with a boldness and a power that can only be attributed to a man who has been transformed by the power of Jesus and his Holy Spirit. And we read in verse 41 that 3,000 people were saved that day through this first sermon of Peter. In Acts chapter 3, Peter heals a, a man lame from his birth. He was 40 years of age. And the miracle is of such proportion that the crowds gather around Peter and he's able to preach a second sermon in Acts chapter 3, verses 11. We, and we're out of time, I won't read it. But the result of that sermon is 5,000 men were saved, total. Now there were 5,000 believers. And Peter and John are arrested and they're put into custody for the night. And then getting to Acts chapter 4, verse 13 and 14, 
We finally got there. Acts chapter 4, 13 and 14. The disciples, James and John, have been arrested. They're standing before the council of religious leaders. And verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated, untrained men, in other words, they hadn't had a, a rabbinical training, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing that the man who had been healed standing with him, they could say nothing about it. They recognized that these men, whose skill set that they should have had, wasn't the men that they were standing before them. These were just fishermen. They shouldn't have been able to defend themselves the way they did. They shouldn't have been as articulate as they were, but they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And then in chapter Acts chapter 5, verses 17 through 34, we see them preaching again, and they're put in prison again, and then they're miraculously released, and they preach again, and Peter in Acts 5, 29 says, we must obey God rather than man. And the, Peter and the apostles are beaten in verse 40, and we see then that Peter and the apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Gone is the man who denied Christ. Gone is the man who betrayed Christ. And now we have a man who rejoices in the opportunity to preach the gospel with boldness and to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. If time allowed, we could draw additional details from the life of Peter in the book of Acts. But let me close by saying that Peter, like us, was imperfect in many ways. He is easily criticized for his many failures, but in part they reflect his bold attempts to follow Jesus, walking on the water, resisting with a sword, following Jesus to the high priest's home, and so on. And yet we see that time with Jesus, his word, and the indwelling Holy Spirit transformed Peter into one of the boldest men in the book of Acts and a key leader of the early church. The Lord is at work in the same way today, transforming lives through his word and the indwelling Holy Spirit. And for this reason, we must, as believers, continue to be committed to the study of the Bible and the leading of God's Spirit in our lives and our churches. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example we have from the life of Peter. Lord, thank you for the transformation that was wrought in his life, Lord, as he spent time with Jesus and the impact of his word. And Lord, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Lord, I pray that we too could be bold in our witness and our testimony, Lord, that we would allow ourselves to dwell on your word and be committed to the study of it, Lord, that it would transform our lives as well. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.